Thanks for joining us at Keys for SLPs, opening new doors for speech-language pathologists to better serve clients throughout the lifespan, a weekly audio course and podcast from SpeechTherapyPD.com. I'm your host, Mary Beth Hines, a curious SLP who embraces lifelong learning. Keys for SLPs brings you experts in the field of speech-language pathology, as well as collaborative professionals, patients, and caregivers to discuss therapy strategies, research, challenges, triumphs, and career opportunities. Engage with a range of practitioners from young innovators to pioneers in the field as we discuss a variety of topics to help the inspired clinician thrive. Each episode of Keys for SLPs has an accompanying audio course on speechtherapypd.com available for 0.1 ASHA CEUs. We are offering an audio course subscription special coupon code to listeners of this podcast. Type the word keys for $20 off. With hundreds of audio courses on demand and new courses released weekly, it's only $59 per year with a code word keys. Visit speechtherapypd.com and start earning ASHA CEUs today. Welcome to this episode Keys to Supporting Patient-Provider Conversations Regarding Medical Concerns. I am Mary Beth Hines. Before we get started, we have a few items to mention. We encourage questions from our participants. You can put your questions in the chat box for our guests to answer at the end of the episode. Here are the financial and non-financial disclosures. I am the host of Keys for SLPs and receive compensation from SpeechTherapyPD.com for hosting this podcast. There are no non-financial disclosures. Hillary Sample receives compensation from SpeechTherapyPD.com for this episode. She is the founder and co-owner of Communication Rescue Services. There are no non-financial disclosures. Dr. Stephen Richmond receives compensation from SpeechTherapyPD.com for this episode. He is the co-founder and co-owner of Communication Rescue Services. There are no non-financial disclosures. And now we welcome our guests today, Hillary Sample and Dr. Stephen Leeds Richmond. Hillary Sample is a speech language pathologist and co owner and co founder of Communication Rescue Services. Hillary has spent her career as an SLP working with stroke and brain injury populations in the inpatient rehabilitation setting. She has a passion for education that has compelled her to serve as a peer mentor, student supervisor, clinical supervisor or clinical fellow supervisor, develop staff competencies, presentations, and training, guest lecture at the graduate level, and present at state and national conferences. In addition to her clinical work in the inpatient rehabilitation hospital and her work with communication rescue services, she is also serving as an adjunct professor at Cleveland State University. And fun fact, Hillary has also had a career as a trained opera singer. All right. And Dr. Stephen Leeds Richmond is a hospitalist physician and co-owner and co-founder of Communication Rescue Services. Dr. Richmond is a board-certified family physician and has worked primarily in the inpatient rehabilitation hospital setting since 2006. With no formal training in communicating with patients dealing with aphasia, he had always felt that there were many barriers to giving these patients the same quality of care. In partnering with Hillary, the MedConcerns app was created to help improve communication of medical concerns in patients with aphasia or other communication challenges. 
Dr. Richmond has presented at the Ohio Speech-Language Hearing Association, the American Medical Rehabilitation Providers Association, and ASHA. We are so happy to have you both on Keys for SLPs to talk about patient-provider communication, and I'm so happy that I met you at ASHA, at the ASHA convention, and have the opportunity to talk to you today about our learning objectives, and I'm just going to go through those, which are the effective communication barriers, specifically with aphasia on equality of medical care, and how communication barriers continue despite evidence that supportive communication techniques are helpful. We will also describe how an AAC app with embedded supportive communication techniques can help reduce the gap in the equality of medical care. All right, so welcome Hillary and Dr. Richmond. Thank you, we're so excited to be here. We certainly are. And we're so glad that we met you at ASHA as well. It was a great conference, that's for sure. Tell us about your individual experiences working with people with aphasia that led you to become aware of and interested in helping people with aphasia specifically communicate medical concerns. Okay. So, you know, you had mentioned a little bit about where we work. I have spent a long time, or my entire career in inpatient rehabilitation hospital, working primarily with patients following stroke, brain injury, or any other changes that impact communication. And so starting out, communication has been one of those things that I I flock to those people who have difficulty communicating. And I find myself, I am an advocate. I'm, I feel like I'm born to be their advocate because I just... Every time I see a struggle, I just want to be able to see what I can do to support. And we're given those unique set of tools to help people with aphasia to communicate. And the more that I, the longer that I spent in rehabilitation, the more that I noticed that we were kind of on an island with those tools and it wasn't quite fair to the people with aphasia. So that was some of the programming that I helped create and in services and labs and competencies were in the interest of increasing people's understanding and ability to use supportive communication strategies and techniques. And we saw some improved understanding and some improved awareness of the people with aphasia and what they're dealing with and the fact that they have, they are competent, they do have things they want to share. So that was an improvement, but we still saw that it was difficult for people to communicate with their physicians and with other disciplines. So I would be in a room and I would be... uh, a physician might come in and I would just be engaging with the patient. And then the physician would come in and they would ask the patient how they're doing. And the patient wouldn't really have anything to say and kind of shrug their shoulders or, you know, when they asked if there was anything bothering them, shrug their shoulders and shake their head. And I could see that they had given up before it even started. And it kind of felt like on both sides that had happened. And after the physician would leave, I would use the supportive communication strategies that I knew, and I would be able to get a detailed assessment of what was bothering them because I knew there was something because they were about to tell me it right before the physician came in the room. You knew there was something and and you knew how to get to it. Yeah. And so, you know, but I am not a physician and I don't have skills in medical assessment. It is outside of my scope of practice. (laughs) And so I don't want to be the one doing that. I, I, so I followed up with Dr. Richmond and I knew him to be just a great advocate for all of our patients and a person that has such an open mind and is always willing to collaborate. And I don't know, just open to hearing what we have to say. And I always felt like he saw me as a member of the team. So I felt welcome to doing that. And I brought my concern to him and shared a little bit about what I see with our patients and that I would like for him to help me formulate a medical assessment based on his skills. And then I would embed the aphasia communication strategy. So I'll let him tell you a little bit about that. 
So my journey started differently. I was trained as a family physician. I had a regular family practice office for about six years before I went into inpatient rehab. The important point of that is I was trained to really get the whole, get the important part of the patient from communicating. I was told that if you could ask the patient all the right questions and listen to their answers, really listen, then the exam and the tests are all kind of just to confirm what you're thinking is going on. But with aphasia, that's really hard. And I had no idea about how to go about that. I moved into inpatient rehab, lots of traumatic brain injury and stroke patients that had problems with communication. And I really didn't have the know-how or tools to, to communicate with them the way I would want to. I would often leave those rooms wondering, did I really get what I was supposed to out of those visits? And then about six years ago, my dad had a really bad stroke. He had aphasia. Same wonderful person there, but hard time communicating. And it became that much more of a goal of mine to figure out how to communicate better with people with communication disorders. But I still really didn't know how to until Hillary and I teamed up and I learned learned more. And that was the nice thing is having, again, having that open mind and some experiences to go off of. It was clear that together we could do something to help these people. So that's that's how we got started. Well, that is wonderful. And how many years ago was that? I know you, well, first of all, how many years have you worked together? So I started practice in, I graduated in 2019 and started in July of that year. So we've been working together ever since. Right. I've been at at that hospital since, well, it's gone through a few renditions, but since 2006, full-time, part-time before that. Mm -hmm. So we've been working together in some capacity for since about 2019. And so in 2019-2020, I was aware of that, you know, the issues that I had already described. And I was making some supportive, like some paper and pencil or some booklets that had what I was trying to do with embedded supportive communication strategies. And so that's actually what I later in about 2021, early on in the year, it started to be about the medical side of it, the medical assessment. And that's when in, I think it was April, I brought it to Dr. Richmond. Okay. It was fascinating. Hillary had these pre-made ideas so that we aren't starting from scratch every time trying to get at the concepts that I would want to ask, except she didn't know what I wanted to ask. (laughs) So it was really, really turned into a nice partnership. Yeah. And the last thing I'll say about that is the different tools that we had. One of the reasons I wanted to do that is because it takes a lot of effort to continually remake those tools. (laughs) And a lot of the questions we ask are the same. And so part of it is helping ourselves out too, by making ourselves more efficient. Exactly. And another thing that I always think of when you're working in an inpatient rehabilitation setting or in skilled nursing, you can do so much while you're there, but when you get in your car and you go home, you don't know if all those tools are going to be used because it's sometimes hard for the staff to get to them. And so to think of of everyone in the hospital having easy access to the same tools that you're using with embedded communication is really exciting. Could you just briefly, and I know we've talked this week and you're going to come back for another episode specifically on supportive communication techniques, but can you just briefly refer to what you're talking about when you say supportive communication? Yeah, absolutely. So if I can start just about people with aphasia, Briefly, aphasia is, it impacts language, reading, writing, speaking, and understanding words. 
according to the National Aphasia, Aphasia Association, a person's intelligence remains largely unaffected. And so when we communicate with patients with aphasia, we are acknowledging that they have competence to share with us and that we need to provide them with a vocabulary that they don't have access to or as easy access to. So what I'm doing is I'm using well, I, I told my students this morning, what would you do if you went into a foreign country and you needed to tell them that you needed to go to the bathroom? <laughs> what would you do? I probably do, you know, the pee pee dance myself or, you know, I'm pointing to the bathroom. I'm like, you know, I'm gesturing because I have a question. I'm giving a facial expression that I need help. My body language is indicating that I need to, to go to the bathroom. So I would use everything at my disposal outside of my verbal language skills. So that's really what I do with people with aphasia. I am acting everything out. I'm gesturing, I'm using body language, I'm using facial expression, and I'm using something that they can point to. So written keywords, anything in the environment that gives a representation of the concept I'm trying to share, whether it's an actual object or whether it's a picture. And so what I like to say about it is, you don't necessarily have a vocabulary, so I want you to borrow mine. And when they borrow mine, they can reveal all that they have to offer. And it's a very exciting experience and it's relieving for them. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And that is such a good point that you made about when you told your students if you were in a foreign country, because some of these techniques can also be used with patients who do not speak English as their first language, and they're trying to communicate their medical concerns as well. So the app that you both have collaborated on can be used in a few different ways. Yeah. Sure. And, and because anybody that can benefit from something to point to can benefit from this tool or use of these tools. And we have people that are hard of hearing, people that are deaf. We know people that are deaf have a very hard time in healthcare, multilingual populations, trach, vent, anybody that needs something to point to. Yeah, it was so interesting. We started this journey looking to help people with aphasia and we're finding it really helps all kinds of communication disorders to use techniques like these. Yeah. Well, it's so exciting. Okay, well, let's review the literature as well as your experience that reveals how communication barriers affect quality of and equal access to medical care. Okay, starting off, just to say that aphasia is a unique type of barrier because it's invisible largely to people in our society because it conceals a person's true competence. And sometimes people even lack the physical demonstration of having had a stroke. So maybe, you know, they had their stroke further back in their brain and it didn't impact their motor cortex. So they might not have the weakness on the right side. So because public knowledge of the disability is pretty lacking, people with aphasia tend to withdraw from society and it, and it tends to be something that's easy to overlook. And I think communication barriers in general are easy to overlook. And although it's not totally related, the concept of invisible disability is a is a big one that's uh, in more than just aphasia. We see with other fibromyalgia and a lot of other conditions where people look to be okay, but yet they need accommodations. Here, of course, we're talking about accommodations for communication difficulties, but it's such an important underlooked area. I just had to throw that in. Mm -hmm. So I think you're going to start talking about the healthcare sure. side. So on the healthcare side, there are lots of barriers to talking to people with communication difficulties. First, lack of training. I went to medical school, learned all kinds of things, but did not learn a darn thing formally about talking to people with communication difficulties. And neither did most of my colleagues or most of the nurses or the aides or the other healthcare workers that I work with. 
So when we run into it, we're kind of flying by the seat of our pants and without any guidance from speech, we're kind of lost. Luckily, we have SLPs that could give us some guidance, and most of us don't have that luxury or that training. We did some some literature review, and there's a uh, professor out at the University of Washington in Baylor. He developed this FRAME program that he uses with uh, med students there that's really fascinating. FRAME is an acronym, F, to familiarize yourself with the patient's disability before you walk in the room. R is to reduce your rate of speech. A, to assist the patient with their communication. M, a big one, to mix up the types of communication, whether it's in addition to words, pictures, gestures, facial expressions, sounds. And then E, perhaps the most important, to engage the patient, as in um, to respect their autonomy and ask them, hey, is it okay if I try to finish your sentences to see if I know what you're saying? Is it okay if I propose this or that? So instead of just presenting the patient a yes-no question, you're asking for their permission to do whatever it is that you're trying to do with them, and they're an active participant. I love that they're actually doing this at a medical school. That's one medical school, and there's over 100 medical schools in the country, but at least they're doing it somewhere. And and there are other medical schools that are doing it too, but I think the point is that it's, it's not everywhere, yeah. and we need it everywhere. Yeah, so lack of training. Yeah. Limited time, big issue. As we all know, we are hurried in healthcare, short appointments, short times. And if there's poor communication, it's that much more difficult to get anything effective in the visit. And of course, short time, we get frustrated patients, frustrated providers. That's a tough combination. One of the things that we saw when we looked in the literature is, I mean, really, it's the literature reveals exactly what we're experiencing. I'm frustrated, the person with aphasia is frustrated, the nurse is frustrated, the OT, the PT is frustrated, the physician's frustrated. Everybody wants to help. The person with aphasia wants to be helped, but there's not that awareness of how. And so the main point in the literature that we love to see is that people with aphasia want you to just try and people, healthcare providers want to know how. And so all we need to do then is give them that, you know, give them the tool, give them the resources, bridge that gap, bridge the gap. And we'll talk about some of the solutions in a little bit and some of the barriers to those. But yeah, so one of the things about this is how does it end up going? So Dr. Richmond talked about a lack of training and maybe some have training, but one of the things we saw in the literature is that they might get training and then they don't have enough opportunities to practice the training. And then they feel unsure about the training and, and it might not have been practiced enough for them to feel effective and they don't feel confident, things like that. And then at other places, the training, they did feel better. They felt more confident and they were able to use strategies, but generally people in medical schools are not given the tools to communicate with people with disabilities and with communication disabilities. True. We get training in how do you establish rapport? How do you establish trust? How do you listen and and really respond to people's questions? And of course, those things, rapport and trust are so important to make progress in helping people with their medical issues. And if you can't start there, it's challenging. Yeah. So, A lot of what we found, so Dr. Michael Burns has been doing a lot of great research at the University of Washington. I mean, Dr. Morris, her article in 2022, there are so many things that show us the barriers. And one thing that's just on the human side is how do you adjust when you make assumptions or when you have limited training? So limited training in communication techniques If I don't feel confident walking into the room to talk to Dr. Richmond when he has a a communication barrier, I'm going to find my way out pretty quick. 
because I don't really feel like I'm there and I'm effective or I question it or I feel uncomfortable. And so I don't know that that's how everybody feels, but I can imagine. And I know that for the person with aphasia, maybe they've had a person, an SLP working with them just before. And that SLP was able to talk with them and engage with them. And then their healthcare provider walked in and wasn't able to do that. How does that feel? Why did that happen? Why isn't my healthcare provider using that same tool that just worked with my SLP? Did my trust in healthcare change as a result of the distinct difference in those two experiences. One related thing, my first visit with a patient, regardless of the setting, it's usually my longest visit. You know, we need to establish their history, talk about their background, talk about their concerns. And when it's someone with a significant communication problem, how do you talk about all those things? And, and those visits that were normally so long are often not as long. And it always would leave me questioning, you know, what are we missing? What's, what are all the things that aren't being said and how do we get to them? So it's not for a lack of a desire. And that should be, we want that to be clear because this is no judgment on our wonderful healthcare providers. This is just the status of our healthcare experience right now. So we know that when, when people don't have the training, they limit or constrain opportunities for the patient to actively participate in healthcare decision makings and medical care and any part of the conversation. They might use open-ended questions that the person doesn't have a vocabulary to answer. They might ask yes, no questions, which is great. They're trying to have more of a clear response, but imagine, <laughs> imagine if yes or no was the only response you could ever give to your doctor. And what if I'm going down the path of following up with what I think is a complaint about rebreathing and their main concern is they're constipated or something else common that I just didn't pick up on. And if you didn't ask the right question and, and they weren't able to tell you, hey, man, you're on the you're way on the wrong track, then what was it worth? Was it worth anything that experience? So we also know that physicians and healthcare providers tend to speak with the caregiver to expedite or gain clarity especially in the interest of efficiency and, and probably comfort. And the interesting thing that literature revealed is that caregivers may help or they actually may interfere or both. And that makes perfect sense to me because when I go into a patient's room, when they're communicatively intact, they can answer questions with me and their significant other or their family members in there. Sometimes I'll get some stuff from their significant other or family member. And the person's like, uh-uh, you know, and they want, they're like, you know, get out of here. <laughs> right. and, they to and I, I can be pretty sure that maybe not everybody would disagree with their care caregiver or significant other, but some people might, because we're humans and we don't, I can't imagine what's in Dr. Richmond's mind, no matter how much we spend time together working on this stuff. I am not him. And so I think that is when we rely a hundred percent on the carer, then we neglect the fact that the person might not agree and maybe doesn't want all the communication to be deferred to another just out of ease. Yeah, it's a frustrating balance because of course you want to get what information you as the caregiver want to, I'm sorry, you as the healthcare provider want to get what information you can, ideally from the patient, but you know, we often just turn to the person that's there because um, we don't know how to turn to the patient. Uh, when we're dealing with communication disorders. And then in Burns et al.'s 2015 article, Meredith et al.'s 2007 article, and Zifiani's in 2004, and many others, they showed that physicians feel 
very challenged in caring for these patients and it impacts their confidence in making accurate diagnoses and treatment recommendations. So our healthcare providers aren't feeling comfortable and they're not given the tools that they need. And so, you know, we talked a little bit about how the person might feel if they only get a yes, no, if they're not talked to, but the caregiver is. And then also just to be part of the turn taking at all. Have you ever been in a room where Steve over here has aphasia and I'm talking to his family over here, or I might be in the room talking to another healthcare provider like he's not even there because he can't understand because he's not competent because he can't communicate. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, those limited turn taking, like, you know, even when somebody can't actively communicate, I've been taught to, I'll tell the person with aphasia before I start talking with their family that I'm going to say some things that are just with the family, but we've already talked about it and I'll point to it as I go. I want to make sure that they get all the information, but I'm not leaving you out. This is what we're talking about. And we will review it one-on-one if we need to move a little bit more quickly. Yeah. It's so fascinating how we see over and over in the literature supporting what we see that people's competence, their cognitive abilities are always questioned. Mm -hmm. You know, is a a person still in there? But we know from our own experience, they are just need to figure out how to, how to get to it. There's a quote that we love from a burn study in 2015, or one of the patients that was in the study said, they can be like the best actual doctor in the world, but if they can't communicate with the patient, then it's kind of useless. Right, right. Well, that's so true. And to think of someone, especially in the inpatient hospital setting, where the incident is still fairly new, it's so important that they have as much autonomy as possible and that they have a stake in their own medical care and they don't feel like someone else has taken it over for them. And having a tool that allows them to communicate is just a wonderful way to improve that equality of care and autonomy. I know we'll get into the app a little bit more later and other tools that are useful, but one of the things we made sure to put in the app is education pages. One of the first things when I read the literature, one of the first things people want to know is what happened to me. But if Dr. Richmond can't communicate anything to me, he also can't tell me what happened. And so I'm lost on this foreign in a foreign country where I can't speak the language and I also don't know why and I don't know what happened. And so the education is put in aphasia friendly terminology so that number one, they're empowered because they know what's going on. And then from there, they're empowered to make decisions based on that information. But it always, to me, starts with education. And that's something that we don't know is lost or we don't think about as often. Yeah, it's so interesting. When I see patients without communication difficulties, I'm talking to them the first time we review what happened. And I'm still surprised at how often they don't really know what happened. Yeah. I mean, they know parts of it, but not as much as I think they should. Yeah, so I think that that education that people can understand, uh, explain what aphasia is, why do they have it, so important. and. I think it's kind of relieving when people at least have an understanding. Mm -hmm. And we have a lot of resources to share. I want to get you a resource list in case you can share that with the listeners today. Yes. So, and also Dr. Richmond, I wanted to acknowledge, thank you for sharing the experience about your father. I'm sorry that that happened to him. And I do appreciate that that has has helped motivate you to, to make this app as best as it can be. And he is a physician as well. Yes, he was an orthopedic surgeon. Great man. He was very excited as we we're starting this app. Unfortunately, he passed, but he was he got to see the beginnings of it. He was very excited. Well, I'm I'm sorry that he passed. 
I didn't realize that. And well, thank you so much for sharing. And I know that he's uh, excited that you're making this happen for so many people. When we were preparing for this episode, I mentioned that I also have a friend whose father was a physician and he had aphasia and he was trying so hard to diagnose his his medical conditions. And he just, it was very, very difficult. So it's so exciting to know that there are more tools out there now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there are also some, and I know you're, you're helping us share our tool, but there are also some wonderful books that are written by doctors. My stroke of insight is one where that person actually experienced a stroke and could share what it's like from the inside from a doctor's perspective. So just throwing that out there is good material. All right. Well, include that on the resource list. Okay. If you haven't already, as you sought to address this problem and did your literature review and did your review of what other tools were out there, what information did you learn that was most impactful? Oh, of the single most thing, it's another article with Bartlett. He found that people with communication disorders were three times, three times more likely to suffer from a preventable adverse medical event. So three times more. Wow. Likely. Yeah, just crazy. And one of the interesting things about his study, he was in Canada, although some of his people he's talking about did have a failure from a stroke or a traumatic brain injury, some simply could not speak English or French and were otherwise totally intact, but still three times as more likely to get an adverse medical event just because that communication wasn't there. So the care wasn't appropriate treatment or delay in treatment or failure to catch something. An adverse medical event, just to clarify, is an unintended injury or complication caused by clinical management rather than by the patient's condition. And so this is something that did not need to happen. It might be like Dr. Richmond was saying, inappropriate treatment, delayed treatment, failure to monitor the patient's status. They can't necessarily tell us what's wrong. So when we think about the numbers and, you know, why that got even bigger for us is 15% in one study, Bartlett's study that he was referencing in 2008, 15% of admissions to university hospitals involved patients with one or more disciplines severe enough to completely impact communication. So to prevent almost any form of communication. So if we have 15% of admissions three times at a three times higher risk of an adverse medical event, we can start to see the depth and breadth of this problem. And, you know, and then we also know. And we also know the population in general, National Aphasia Association tells us there's 2 million Americans with aphasia. A lot of people out there that could use some help with communication. And there's also 180,000 new cases every year. So the problem doesn't go anywhere. You know, we have more people to help. And we know that with our aging population, there's going to be more and more cases. So we do need to be changing what we're doing. The other number that surprised me, according to the NHIS, 10% 10% of normal adults, I was in adults are not institutionalized, have a speech, language, or voice disability. Mm-hmm. And that was a lot higher than I would have guessed. Mm-hmm. So some of what was really surprising in the American with Disabilities Act of 1990 requires that healthcare organizations provide effective communication to all patients with disabilities, including those with communication disabilities. And then Section 1557 of the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act requires that healthcare organizations provide effective communication, which includes provision of auxiliary aids and services. And then, you know, so we have we have these, these laws, these expectations, <laughs> and it's not happening. The most frequent ADA lawsuit 
is related to the lack of providing effective communication. And that comes from Dr. Morris's article in 2022. And so we'll talk a little bit about why that might not go anywhere, but also the Joint Commission? Yeah. Joint Commission, the other group that certifi- they certify hospitals and hospitals get recertified every one to three years, depending on how well they pass their last certification. I've been involved with a couple times our hospitals have gone through it. And it's interesting that the hospital prepares in all kinds of ways. And then the all these people come down and ask all kinds of questions. And although the Joint Commission says, we were done here, that the hospitals are required to effectively communicate with patients when providing care, treatment, and services, that makes sense. They should identify patients' oral written communication needs, makes sense, including preferred languages, makes sense. They talk about hearing aids, interpreters, communication boards, and all that makes sense, but I've never seen anything beyond that. And maybe that's because they just didn't know that there could be more beyond that. And so the terminology is in there that the hospital effectively communicates, but the problem is we haven't necessarily determined if what we gave is effective. So if we haven't determined it's effective, have we met the standard? And we know we haven't. So those were the things that stuck out to us most. And then the solutions too, but um, just the weight of it, just the weight of it. Why do you think that the healthcare disparity continues despite evidence that supportive communication techniques are helpful? Training. <laughs> uh, tra- training is a huge one. You know, there's lack of, well, first there's lack of awareness that there's better options. And if you're not aware of it, how do you learn about it? How do you learn how to do it? And it's not taught in most medical schools. It's not taught, taught in most nursing schools or in nursing aid schools. Or And then we think about systemic change. You know, like I'm often hearing that it takes 20 years to get something from research to practice. And so part of that is the change that's needed with time. But also if people don't know then why are they going to make a change? And there's a real big lack of awareness going on about this, but there's more, there's comfort with collaboration. There's a lack of physician SLP collaboration. And again, people might not know that they need it. And so it's not something that's necessarily done, but Brady and colleagues in 2013 for the people with aphasia capacity to consent, research participation and intervention inequalities, they said that people with aphasia have been excluded from full participation in some areas of stroke research with potential clinical consequences to that systemic exclusion. So there's a lack of research too. And while somebody that was able to communicate might be involved in that, we also know there's cost associated with the programming and the change and the training and all of those things. And I was just listening to Dr. Morris's presentation that went with that 2022 article and what she said, and I'm I'm paraphrasing is that's not always what people want to do. They don't necessarily want to incur that cost. Sometimes it is cheaper to settle than to pay the money up front to make the change. One, I guess part of the question is, or part of the problem is it's hard to change the whole system. We have a a great example that kind of relates about the patient in a wheelchair that I know you, you'd like a lot, so you should probably tell it. Oh, yeah. And that's from the same article. And this is kind of the social model is that a person who uses a wheelchair is not disabled until they reach a building with no ramps or elevators. They're not disabled until they don't have access to the building. If the building is fully accessible, then the person in the wheelchair would not experience a disability. And so therefore the environment, in this case, the building needs to be fixed, not the person. And so the person with aphasia is not disabled by the communication impairment if we provide a shared language. So if we do our part, they are only disabled by their communication impairment if we do not. 
And that one, that like kind of just speaks to my heart. Just we, it's, it's on us to change the environment in which these people come and, and where they really put a lot of trust in us. I love that analogy. Thank you for bringing that to our attention. And that is so vivid. So, well, let's, I, we have some time to dive into this app. So tell us about, so you, you started working in 2019 and then you came together and said, this is a problem. And I also, Dr. Richmond, I also just want to point out how much I appreciate your collaboration with SLPs. And it's also as a, as a physician or as, as any type of professional, it's hard for us to admit that we're not perfect sometimes, or the system is not perfect. Oh, none of us. <laughs> so the one thing I really love about the inpatient rehab environment is it's a real team environment, at least where we our work it is. And it's there's so much to be gained by uh, you know involving SLPs or PTs or the physiatrist or whoever needs to be involved. It's yeah, we can accomplish so much more together. But you're you're really right, Mary Beth. He's kind of a I call him a unicorn. <laughs> <laughs> But he's not. But one of the things that we do is we kind of put physicians up on a pedestal. I never really realized that they weren't given the tools because they're physicians. You know, they should know everything. And so some of it is just like the fact that he was willing to sit with me and say like, oh, that's interesting. Tell me more about that. Like, it's huge. It's what needs to collaboration needs to happen in order to affect some change. So true. So there's that. Yes. Okay. So. The app acts as an interpreting tool. It provides a shared language. It's simple AAC. So one of the things that I think some people might hear about this and think high-tech AAC that needs all the programming and behind the scenes stuff. This is not high-tech AAC. This, this is, is simple. This is simple. <laughs> and the reason we made it simple is because if we're talking about a training barrier, we do not want to make something that requires training. <laughs> we want to make something that can bypass that in order to immediately help somebody. So the person sitting right in front of me needs my help now. I don't have the tools, but the app does. And so that's really what it is. It has embedded supportive community communication techniques and medical evaluation. So truly a combination here from what we brought to the equation. So the patient is provided with icons. You can talk a little bit about what, if you want to describe it. So when you look at the app, you're looking at the electronic device, iPad, iPhone, eventually Android, and you see icons with with pictures. You see the word below that describes what the picture is. And if you push that picture, you get the verbal, the auditory word of that picture. So we're layering one of the things I learned. Yeah. So layering modalities. If somebody can't read, that's okay. They're also given a picture. They're given the written keyword and they're also, it's spoken. So they have multiple ways to kind of increase, improve the meaning of that word. If I was speaking a different language and somebody provided me with all those ways to look at it, I would have a better understanding, even if I couldn't read. So I, I noticed that somebody in the chat was talking about visual stuff, visual impairments. And I know we're going to take those questions later, but I do want to speak to that now. We made sure that we acknowledged that barrier right off the bat. Our app, we have generally it's six icons if you want to default into the most complex version, but it can go down to a field of one. 
that when when you press the icon, it gives you a yes, no question. And so it can be very, very simple to use, or it could be more complex up to a field of six. So it's one, two, four, and six icons. And interesting, well, interesting from our perspective, we made it zoomable, which we thought would be simple, but uh, the developer told us it was actually very complicated. For them, but it, it's really easy for the person using it, <laughs> but they were so, very nice to help us out. Yeah. So if for, yeah, for visual impairments, or if you need to see something bigger, everything's zoomable. And once you make a selection, and, and I know we're going to talk about this in a second, but a confirmation page will come up. You're given that opportunity to see it larger. And so there's- I used to hate confirmation pages. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> not coming from SLP background, I do not understand the point of these confirmation pages. But eventually, I got it. You know, these people with communication difficulties might pick the wrong thing and don't have a particularly good way to correct. We should talk more about that in a second. But now we've got a confirmation page after everything. You click mm -hmm. on you're having problems with abdominal pain. Before it moves on, it says abdominal pain. Yes, with a green check or no, with a red X. And you either move on or move back. But we have a great story about confirmation pages, the one with the PT. That oh, I was doing some training with PT the other day. I, I'm still doing these trainings. There's a, a lot of other people that are working on it too. But I was telling them about opportunities to repair. So people with aphasia might have difficulty repairing a language mistake because they have a language impairment. So I was talking to the PTs and I'm like, okay, if somebody has a weak left leg and they trip because of their weak left leg, are they catching themselves with their weak left leg or are they using their right? So we want to we want to also acknowledge this, this for language impairments that we don't want them to have to use an impaired system to be aware of a mistake and then use the impaired system to correct it. We want to help them out. So confirmation pages are really important. And let me talk a little bit about what the app says or has, because I think we dove right into the middle of it. Um, but what you get is first a, a an introduction page where I can write or I can use emojis to introduce myself to the patient. Second, I'm given a how are you page where I can just say I'm good, bad, I'm I'm up and down. Um, get, better, get worse. Yep, you're given an opportunity to say how you're doing. So let's say I pick bad. And then we're taken to the concerns page. The concerns page is like the home page. And what it provides is that series of potential categories of problems that somebody might have from pain, fatigue, bowels, urination, let's see, nausea. There's a bunch. There's a lot. Trachs. Yeah. And we're making that actually in a little bit. We'll have our new, our updates, which will have more and will allow you to take some off to customize it sure. for yourself. Right now, when I go into a patient's room, I when I started working in patient rehab, I came up with a list of what I want to ask every patient to be sure I don't miss the basics. So I ask everyone, problems with chest pain, problems with breathing, problems with your bowels, problems with urination. And we go through it pretty quickly. So those are, of course, part of the app. But with people without communication barriers, of course, they can add to that easily. So we added a lot of follow-up. Yeah. And more, more categories than those two. Yeah. We wanted to make sure we touched on as much as possible. So with each selection, what makes it aphasia friendly is that they make their selection. They just touch the screen. And the next thing that comes up is the confirmation with the enlarged picture and the yes, no, they say yes. And they move forward. They say no. And they're given the opportunity to select something else. If they say yes, that was correct, they're moved to a sub or a series of options that's below that category. So subtopics. So if they have, let's say, fatigue, then we're going to say a series of questions yeah. about that. Yeah, like, why are you fatigued? Are you having mm -hmm. trouble sleeping? Are you waking up tired? Are you having fatigue after your meds? Or, or is, 
your fatigue after exercise. We have a series of things that might be causing fatigue, trying to zero in on you know what the problem is. So we're going to go hey. through just an example. So we were on, can you hear that recording? Yes. This is um, okay. Yes. So we were given the concerns page. We see a field of six and we can scroll down to get many more, but we see pain and Dr. Richmond, Steve is having pain. So he, he touches pain. <laughs> That's what I'm going to say here. <laughs> we're going to make it quick and try to go through, but make sure that you can kind of see it. And then sure. we're given an image, the enlarged image with yes, no. And he says, I say yes. He says, yes, yes he's having pain. pain. And the follow-up is, where is your pain? We're given a full body image and the opportunity to see the back body image. And he can choose anywhere on that body to locate his pain. So I could point to the back of the knee, for instance. Okay. Which we'll do, but let's say I missed and I hit the calf by accident. Lower leg. So I could say, no, I did not want that. We'll go back. He's got the confirmation page and he selects no. no. We'll hit the knee correctly and move on. Okay. Knee. And each time there's a there's a visual. So when there was a visual of the lower leg, for example. And as you're hearing the audio, there's the visual and there's the printed word. It's never going to be a guessing game as much as we can make it not a guessing so we game. We got the layering yes. all over. And we made sure that our pictures really fit people's conception of the feelings. As much as we could, we kind of surveyed a large group of people to find out if it meant what we thought it meant. So some easy examples, as well as we could. sharp stabbing pain. We've got a picture of a knife with sharp and stabbing. <laughs> so how did you feel is the next screen. And one thing I want to throw in here real quick is for people with aphasia, a lot of times what I hear from others is that, and what I've experienced for myself is you get, you might get location of pain. You might get severity of pain because that pain scale is widely used and you might get, let's see, well, those are pretty much That's the pretty main much ones, but you don't get a description. And we use this with one of our friends who was having a, a really bad, really, really bad pain in his leg. And we got to this, how does your pain feel? Because he and his wife wanted, like, we got to figure this out. Can we use your app? And so we have that video on our website, but he actually pointed to three different things. He was so busy describing, <laughs> he was so excited and he totally took over, but he was like squeezing tight and burning, you know, but we have squeezing tight, burning, aching, dull, spasming, numb, tingling, any descriptor. And so what we ran into is that nurses don't like to offer potential descriptors because they don't want to guide your response. But with a person with aphasia, you need to at least have the set of potential options. And if you have someone that has something in mind that's not here, there's always the something else option. Yes. On every page, there's something else. So let's say you're experiencing spasming pain. He's he's hit spasming. spasming. He gets the confirmation page and hits yes. Yes. I don't normally assume for our patients, but we've walked this through a time or two. <laughs> so we'll go with moderate. So he's seeing the pain scale that we all recognize, except for we we made it our own and we're getting moderate pain. So he's touching the yellow smiley. That's not, not smiling. Not smiling. <laughs> Three to four. Moderate. And it, it gives the confirmation page. Is it moderate? And we'll yes. Say yes. Okay. Now... Now we have the how often page. Another thing that's really tough to get, you know, yeah. another situation. What are the exacerbating factors? What is, like, when is it starting? Is it all day? Is it in the evening? Does it come and go? Is it with activity? This so we, with activity. we have all of those options there. Is it with sitting, with standing? So he says with activity. And that's what our friend did too. He like quickly. So as soon as he saw that with activity, he goes, oh, 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 oh. And he pushed it. With activity. Um, but yes, with activity. 
Yes. Okay. Yes. So now we get, when did it start? So we're also able to get to onset of pain. And so we have a today calendar, morning, afternoon, and evening. We could go to the week and we have Sunday through Saturday and the months and going, you can go back or as far as you want to go. And this might sound complicated, but you know, you got the week right in front of you. You can just pick any day and you click on a day and that's what you get. And what I typically um, do is I'll say, okay, so today confirmation page. <laughs> today is, let's say today is Thursday. I don't know. I have to change the day, but today is Thursday. And so did your pain start today? And I'll point to it and, and, but they'll be able to go a couple days back. If they're not perfect at it, I don't care. I got to know that it happened before today and it happened a couple of days, at least before today. That's more than I was going to get otherwise. One of the neat things we've seen is sometimes people go to months and just scroll back months like, okay, it's been a long time. We don't know exactly, but at least we know that concept. So it might be too complicated to use precisely. And that's okay. For some, it's absolutely not too complicated, but with it's going to inform us way more than not having it. So you said Today. it started this morning, this morning, morning. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. So now we've reached the end of that assessment and there's a check mark that it, it provides sort of like a user queue to press that and you're given a summary. So now we have the summary page. It starts with, he was doing bad. He's having pain in his knee. It's spasming. It's moderate level of severity. It's with activity and it's a new problem. So we have it all summarized for you. And so if you're helping your physician or your nurse out doing this, you can just take it right over to them. And this is what I got. Just to say, I love that the summary page is also kind of a confirmation with the patient to say, okay, so we went through blah, 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 you know, it's pain, spasming, and so forth. And they yeah, say, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that or if not, you can fix it. But if it's right, then you can move on and start to address it. So this has this has the summary page. And if you wanted to go back and confirm, you can grab the yes, no board from anywhere in the app. It's on the navigation bar down at the bottom. You also have access to a whiteboard. The whiteboard, you can you can type, you can draw, you can grab any picture from the app and put it in the whiteboard. You can also do emojis. <laughs> I like to speak with emojis sometimes. They're, they're very, you know, they're easy to understand for a lot of people. And then in the menu... We wanted to make sure that we give people other resources as well. So we have a needs board and that's going to cover a wide range of requests or something that they need to tell you that's kind of outside of the general concerns. We have a topic board and this one was a favorite. Yeah, this one's more for people with bigger well, bigger question in the sense it's a more general, generalized topic. You know, what about discharge? Or what about driving? What about communication? Will I get better? Topics that are important but hard to convey. Yeah. So they can guide the communication with, they can tell their doctor, I want to talk about raising my children. I want to talk about what in the world happened to me. I want to talk about home setup, stroke prevention. I can ask all of those things because they are buttons that I can press on here. And I must say, yes, Yeah, most of my patients with strokes that are without communication impairments, they ask, what can I do to prevent this? Mm -hmm. So I Certainly anticipating more and more people with this app will be asking as well. And like we said, we have the education pages on here. There are other tips that are on here too. So you can learn a little bit more about aphasia and what you can do to help. We have an update that's coming soon too, where we are going to have the ability to customize. So in order to be a little bit more user-friendly for if you have a certain patient population and there's no trachs, there's no people with pegs, you can eliminate those possibilities from the board and have it be a little bit quicker to go through. We've been going on and on. We should probably stop for questions. Yeah. (laughs) I do have a question. The summary page includes all three, the words, the pictures, as well as the 
audio output? Well, the the audio is not on that page. It's the pictures with the written keywords of everything. Okay. And I recommend that the healthcare provider say the words out loud because somebody might not necessarily be using it in that way. That is also to benefit our healthcare providers and take it with them. And you can save the boards to the device too and compare day by day. Excellent. Excellent. I do see that Kathy wrote about other visual impairments besides it just being difficult to see lower acuity, macular degeneration, things like that. There are going to be moments where you have to help them to see what they're seeing or what, what's before them if they really can't see. And But I'll tell you what, it's better than having nothing. And I would, I would be, it would take me 45 minutes to do what I can do in five minutes with the app because the choices are pre-made from the doctor and I know what to ask. So at least if they can't see it all, you have the opportunity that it's going to guide you through the supportive communication techniques. And you can read aloud, have it be field of one or field of two, do yes, no questions to find out what's bothering them. Of course it's not perfect, but oh, it's a heck of a lot better than what I didn't have before. Yeah. Dr. Richmond, how more efficient are your initial assessments with people with aphasia using this app versus not having the app? They're huge. It used to be it used to be patients with aphasia would have shorter visits because we couldn't, I didn't know how to get anywhere. And now we do. Um I had a patient recently that he had pretty bad aphasia when he came in. He luckily was making some quick progress. And I was debating whether or not I should use this app because his speech was really coming along. And we talked for a bit. He said he was fine. But I said, let's just double check. And I pulled the app. And after telling me things are fine, he pointed uh, to medications. I'm like, okay. And we ended up with a discussion about a, a new medication at night that was he didn't know about and he was worried about. It ends up it was Aricept, which actually is some recent research that it may help aphasia, which is why he was on it. But it turned from a question I didn't even know he had to him being reassured he's on a medicine that makes sense for him. So even when people are doing really well, there's still going to be that anomia factor. We still don't know how much that the uh, language barrier is impacting them. And so I like to start my sessions with it. When I have a person with aphasia that I'm working with, we're thinking about that hierarchy of needs. I want to get to those bottom two, the safety and and well-being. I want to get to that first and make sure that I've addressed their safety needs in order to then start doing treatment and all of those things for something that even though I might be working on self-advocacy, I need to make sure they don't actually need something before I start working on the, Mm -hmm. the treatment for it. I also wanted to share a couple of, if I could share a couple of experiences that I had that got us to this point on my end. I didn't share earlier the, well, yes, please. I shared about the fatigue. The one that I did want to share about is about safety. So we don't know what potential a tool like this has in the hands of somebody who didn't have any. I one time had a patient with a severe uh, non-fluent aphasia. She could not say anything. She also had apraxia, the motor problem where she couldn't get her words out even if she had them. And she was crying and and just in distress. You could tell she was just so upset and crying and crying in her bed. And multiple healthcare providers who truly cared were in there trying to make her feel better and comforting her. And after she was unable to be comforted for a little bit of time, and it wasn't long, but it was enough, they came out and they found me. I was her SLP and asked me to help see what's going on. And so I used my supportive communication strategies and I found out pretty quickly that she was having chest pain. And it turned out she was having an emergent event, which turned out to be a heart attack. 
For people with aphasia, if I don't have the communication ability, then it turns into the nonverbal ways. How am I going to tell you that something's terribly wrong? I'm going to cry. How am I going to tell you that I'm sad? I might cry. How am I going to tell you that I'm frustrated? I might cry. Everything can kind of look the same. So we can easily go down the wrong route. And if we don't, if we do that with something that's like an emergent event, that's how people get three times higher risk of AMEs. I had a not I had a not nearly a severe experience, but one that was eye-opening for me. I was covering for another doctor on a psychiatric floor doing medical evaluations. And there was a patient with nonverbal there, and the staff told me he was really acting out that day. And he, I guess, had done that in the past. I thought I'd try the app. It's the first time I tried it with someone nonverbal. And he immediately went to urinary problems and he had a urinary tract infection. It was mm-hmm. I was impressed and surprised at how quickly that was helpful. And it's been pretty intuitive for people to use. Just want to speak to Kathy. Thank you so much for the questions. And thank you for asking about the visually challenged patients because it is so important. And we want to be able to tell people what we've done to try to anticipate that need. So thank you for using this for saving anything. The version that we'll end up making for the healthcare facilities to use will not have saving capacity so that it's HIPAA compliant and more comfortable for those facilities. The ones that I have, I would never put a patient's name in it. I would save it as something that's unrecognizable without identifiers. And then I can save it and it can have multiple different people because I'm the only one who knows who they are. But yes, and then people can obviously buy this for their own family member or for themselves, and then they would have their own information shared on there and they could look at it day by day, the changes. Thank you. Thank you. Excellent. All right. Well, we are getting close to time. Do you have any more examples? When did you first have the prototype to use with patients? How long have you actually been using the app with patients? Prototype probably a year and a half, maybe a little more. December 21. That sounds about right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It took a while to make all the pictures. Oh, it, there's a lot of stuff that goes on behind the scenes. <laughs> I'm an SLP and he's the physician and we have been turning in. We initially made a first prototype for iPhone because I thought it'd be so convenient to have that in your pocket. And we were talking with some hospital administration and we were strongly encouraged to move to an iPad for for hospital use. So and- then we have the iPad <laughs> and now people really wanted it for the iPhone because we're there's a lot of different people. There's the SLPs, there's the hospitals, there's the doctors, there's the people with aphasia and their communication partners. So we're working on having it universal as soon as possible. Yeah, but it's been fascinating because for me, this, the phone that's in my pocket is convenient. For the mm-hmm. SLPs that have a table with them, it seems like the iPad's more convenient. And luckily they will have them both soon. Yeah. So it was the iPhone, but we didn't actually have it go live. We switched to the iPad as soon as we found out that that might be more of a need sooner than later. And now the iPhone's almost done. Excellent. All right. Well, we probably have a time for one more case study, one more story of one of your patients using it, using the app, or you, you collaborating together with the same patient, whatever you like. There was one patient. Do you have somebody in mind? Are you okay with me jumping in? There was one patient who had experienced just an awful series of events. I won't go into too much detail, but very, very, very depressed young person. And people knew he was sad. People were very scared about what he was thinking. And the app, we have an emotions portion on it too. 
so that we can find out because the psychosocial aspects of I'm giving a smile at the emotions part, but I just remembered who this patient was, and it's a good, it's a good it's an, story. It was so, an important one. Yeah. But they, you know, the psychosocial aspect of having aphasia is huge and we need to really be thinking about it. So we wanted to make sure to anticipate that too and have, get that conversation going. So the person was able to, we opened it up straight away because we wanted to guide that conversation. We wanted to support them in knowing they could tell us this and brought it to the emotions and feelings part of the concerns page. And they were able to tell us exactly how they were feeling. They kind of pointed at every single different photo because sad and angry and frustrated. It was all true. And then they landed on depressed. And that was, that was really it. And it confirmed really what we knew, but it gave them the opportunity to express how they feel, which is like a, like, it feels just so human to be able to say, oh my God, I am so low right now. And so we don't want to stop it at meeting safety needs because emotions are a safety need. Like how people respond to that is huge. So we'll be adding more to that list of emotions and feelings, but it was a great one for us. And it really kind of bonded me and that patient. I felt like in that moment, because I think, you know, I could see him, you know. Well, that's such a good point when you say it's, it's so human to be able to express your emotions. And so inhumane not to be able to express your emotions and not to be able to communicate your medical needs And that's where that inequality comes in. So we really do appreciate you bridging the gap. And I think we have another comment. Thank you. I appreciate your considerable work and thought. Will there be an Android version or this for the Samsung tablet or phone? And I think you said yes. Everywhere. (laughs) We want to. And so we're working on the Android and the tablet version and the iPhone phone version. So in a very short amount of time, I can't say exactly how much, but we, we learned that's harder to predict because it's hard to predict, <laughs> but they are in the works right now, actively being developed. We don't want anybody to not have access to a tool where we're trying to increase access. <laughs> so <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, thank you, Dr. Richmond. And thank you, Hillary. This has been so informative and we really appreciate you coming here tonight. We're so happy that we met you at the ASHA convention. One last thing to say in case we didn't say it is that we have, it's bilingual currently in Spanish and English and that we have more languages in the works uh, right now. Yeah. So just wanted to throw that out there in case that was a question somebody wanted to ask at a later date. (laughs) And well, thank you. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. All right. Well, before we close, do you have any closing remarks? No, we're just grateful that people decided to join us today and wanted to learn more and were willing to invest their time in helping to bridge this gap too. It's so important to us and we know it's so important to everybody in this community and we just needed to come together to find a way how. I'm really glad that together we've learned to help people a lot better. Yeah, it's a good team. Excellent collaboration. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for joining us here at Keys for SLPs, providing keys to open new doors to better serve our clients throughout the lifespan. Remember to go to speechtherapypd.com to learn more about earning ASHA CEUs for this episode and more. Thanks for your positive reviews and support. I would love for you to write a quick review and subscribe. Keep up the good work.